1: Good afternoon and welcome. Well, it's now less than two weeks before school starts and a lot of arrangements are still up in the air and that is causing... Lots of anxiety in the community and not just among parents, children, and teachers. Meanwhile, the numbers seem to be bobbing around a bit. We're below 100 new cases today, but we can't seem to sustain that. And while the expectation is that numbers will go up now that we're in stage three, Everyone is worried about a second wave. And meanwhile, the province's chief medical officer is talking about expanding our bubbles and allowing multiple bubbles, whatever that means exactly. And I think there's general confusion about how to stay safe while getting on with life. Do you have questions or comments? The numbers to call 416 toll free one 866 740 And now I would like to go to Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a family physician and Dr. Raywat Dionandan epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so, you know, literally, minutes before air, we heard in Bob's news, Justin Trudeau's announcement of more money to help the reopening of schools. and, And the government, just minutes ago, did release some details, not a huge amount of detail, but uh it says that you know there's talk about smaller class sizes so it says that 70 million of that money will go to the temporary hiring of educators as required i'm assuming that that can lead to lower class sizes there's 70 million for student transportation yesterday we heard from bus drivers that were upset and uh also more public health nurses uh so um, does that make you and by extension your patients iris a a little easier about all this
2: my patients who are at high risk i'm talking about those over 60 and those with chronic conditions are extremely concerned and i think they have good reason to be concerned because we know that Reopening kids, reopening schools, for one thing, we know it's critical to children's academics, their mental and social health, their physical fitness, and even their food security. But then so is the health of children's household members, or those who are vulnerable to severe COVID-19. And we know that when kids return to school, they will, in fact, face a far greater risk of being exposed to the virus from other kids, teachers, and public transportation. If a child contracts the virus from school, we also know that they show minimal signs and may be asymptomatic, yet still be contagious to household members. And of course, that poses serious risk to those over 60 and with chronic conditions. There is no simple one size fits all. But I think it does make us feel that, you know, for households with those vulnerable populations, it's worthwhile to carefully consider limiting the direct Exposure to kids. When schools do reopen, in my opinion, once kids have returned to school, they should try, when possible, to avoid contact with or keep six feet away from those high-risk household members, even if that means wearing a cloth face mask to protect vulnerable contacts and, of course, wash hands frequently.
1: Okay uh let's move on to Dr Dionandon and, and uh I have to say Iris that one of the things throughout this that I've kind of objected to is that uh the way the statistics are expressed it it says over 60 i mean in fact when you look at it the the high risk group in terms of age is a lot older than that uh if there are no underlying Conditions, so uh, you know, I'm I'm this this over sixty thing. I don't know. I am not on board with it. I have to say,
2: that's a point well taken. But understand that in times of the pandemic, we try to think of things in terms of a population basis. So, could these individuals who are sixty and otherwise totally healthy could they be vectors to other people? Do they add to the burden of illness? And the answer is yes, potentially.
1: Uh, Dr. Dionandon, what do you think about the prospect of the return to school and what will happen?
3: It's, uh, it's troubling, of course, but uh, the important thing to remember is the single best way to keep schools safe is to keep the disease out of schools, which means keeping it out of the community. So we have to do everything that we can to lower the caseload in the overall population. That means that people without children, people who don't work in education, still have a role to play in all of this. This is a society-level effort to keep everybody safe. So the lowering of of class sizes is very important because the second biggest way of keeping schools safe is to enforce physical distancing. And one way, of course, smaller class sizes, bigger classrooms. Mind you, if we're hiring more educators, which is a great idea, I want to make sure those educators are only teaching one class. They aren't proving to be vectors for transmitting the disease from different locations. So we learn from the long-term care centers that workers can be vectors of transmission. We have to make sure we don't repeat that mistake with schools.
1: Well, uh, my understanding is that the kids will be cohorted, even with the larger class sizes, they'll only be with a certain group of kids uh, all the time. So is, is that sufficient?
3: It's not sufficient, but it helps. So nothing is going to be perfect. Remember, what we do in schools doesn't affect what they do at home. They have extracurricular activities. They're going to play with other kids in the neighborhood, maybe. So there'll be cross-contamination no matter what we do. The goal here isn't to achieve one perfect solution, but a multitude of imperfect strategies that, when layered on top of one another, provide something resembling strong protection. We have to brace ourselves. There are going to be cases. There are going to be outbreaks. The question is, what do we do when those outbreaks happen? Do we have the public health infrastructure and mandate and willpower and a strategy to respond to those outbreaks and prevent embers from becoming forest fires?
1: hmm uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, one of the things that is critical here uh, is the wearing of masks. We know that in Israel, when they reopened schools and masks were not required, that led to a spike after they seemed to have everything under control. So uh, do you agree with the restrictions on mask wearing now? Or uh, There are lots of people who say that it should be mandatory for even younger children.
2: Absolutely. And if you take a look at what the American Pediatric Association is saying, they're precisely that message. In fact, they're encouraging children from the age of two to wear masks in a school setting. I think that makes a lot of sense. I would be a proponent of children wearing masks. I think that we can and we can educate our children to help understand the, the concept of what community-based medicine is all about taking responsibility for one another, taking pride in the in wearing a mask and the messaging that that gives, and even involving them in making their masks so that they have a sense of ownership of it. And pride, again. Um, is it doable? Is it going to be perfect? It's doable and it's not going to be perfect. I recognize that. But we also have to do our best to mitigate that second wave. That second wave is going to come. And can we mitigate it to the point where our hospitals are not going to be overwhelmed, especially as the season gets colder, especially as we go into influenza season? That worries me a lot as a family doctor, because influenza, like pneumonia, can create pre-existing lung disease, essentially, which makes for worse COVID outcomes.
1: Uh, Dr. Dionandon, how young do you think children should be before they're required to wear a mask? As young
3: as possible. I love the answer that was just given. Make this a community level effort and show the heroism implicit in wearing masks. The friends that I have with young children all tell me that their kids are fine with wearing masks. They make it into a game. It's it's a way to teach public health and to teach public health hygiene. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yes, kids will fidget with their mask. Yes, some of them will tear off the mask. Yes, some of them will peek over the mask. That's fine. the The goal here is to have most people using it most of the time. In addition, we can also have face shields for those children who can't wear masks for whatever reason. Uh, hearing impaired kids have, need to read lips or maybe some kids that have some claustrophobia issues. Face shields are a good alternative. They're not perfect, but again, the goal isn't perfection. It's just for most of the people to do it most of the time. So 100%, I'm on board with very young children wearing
1: masks. It, it was interesting. You know, last week I was at a very socially distanced event. It was a concert. You could be way more than six feet away from everyone, but they handed out these weird face shields that I'd never seen before that looked to me like I, I'm not sure if they did anything because they didn't go all the way up to the top. They kind of, uh, they had these little uh you know uh, protruding parts and you stuck that on your chin and they went up until past your nose but it didn't fit tightly does it does it sound like anything like that would do anything
3: well, it does something. It's not ideal. The, the idea of a, of a mask is that it's a windbreak preventing you from projecting your droplets past a couple of centimeters. A face shield isn't great about that because there are spaces on the bottom and the sides that allow your uh, droplets to get out if you are in proximity for more than a couple of hours. So an ideal face shield would be one that tucks under your chin. Now, the one that you describe doesn't sound ideal, but it's probably good enough for some uses. Right so again we have to get out of the mindset of perfection. Every little bit helps.
2: I love the sound of this. I love the sound of the utter practicality of what I'm hearing. It's music. This is exactly how we need to think in terms of a pandemic. I mean it's we, if we perfectionism will be our destroyer. What what we have to do is the best we can given the circumstances.
1: Okay, I'm going to take a call from Gail in Toronto. Hello, Gail. Yes, um, I was just
2: wondering, a uh, number of schools are giving uh, breakfast clubs out because uh, parents can't afford to have breakfast for, for the, uh, ch- the students. How are, they going, how are the parents going to pay for all of the face masks that they're going to have to pay for?
1: Uh, well, part of this money that just, uh, was announced this morning, they have $30 million to support additional PPE for schools. So, uh, presumably, uh, that will go, uh, some distance to that. And, uh, I guess the schools, I, I think that the parents will be supplying the masks initially, but I think there will be extras at the school, obviously. And I think provisions, uh, if, if parents can't afford. Mask. You know,
2: I'm hoping something else, because when I hear that as a child myself who was once bullied, I think that raises a lot of interesting points. Would a child be bullied for not wearing a mask? Would a child have be facing social repercussions from the lack of affordability? Because these are children who are already at risk. They're already behind the eight ball. And I think those social determinants need to be addressed head on by schools so i would hope that schools will actually have meetings about this to children and educate them around the importance the societal importance of saying you know what we're all in this together and we're going to do the best we can to protect everybody you know and let's just hope that message gets through and let's hope that that money meets its mark
1: Uh, Gail, uh, does that answer your question? Yes, but is the uh, breakfast club going to continue
2: when uh, the school started again?
1: Uh, My understanding is that yes, and I know that that's one of the main reasons that a lot of uh, people are anxious to get back to school, because what's happening, and we know that throughout the pandemic there's been more food insecurity, not less. Uh, So my understanding is that that is one of the reasons behind the push to get back to school. Right. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Gail. Again, numbers to call four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll- free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty and now I'm uh, bringing in Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the school of Op- Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University hi hi uh,
4: hi Libby
1: libby uh, Libby sorry. So uh we've just had announcements of more money with a, a, a little bit of detail from the province a, and to go over some of the detail, a hundred million to complement the health and safety components uh, hiring of custodians HVAC, which obviously they can't get done in a week and a half or whatever we've got 30 million for PPE, 70 million for the hiring of temporary educators, 70 million for transportation. We know that that's a a big problem area, the buses. And uh, as well, uh, uh, what else do we have here? Special education, uh, additional public health nurses. Uh, Does that make you confident that uh, this is gonna be safe, Dr. Sly?
4: Well, uh, all these little things will help. Remember, we're we're in an unknown area. We've never really been in anything like this in living memory. And so when I look at the list like that, I'm also looking at the list of the, of the five C's. You know, we've, we've narrowed most of the risk issues down to five C's, the closed spaces, close contact, continued exposure, coverings thats the face, and crowds. And when you look at those five C's, the schools fit neatly into that lot. So we're into a a, a really, frankly, an unknown situation. This is why you're getting people who really are saying, well, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. Is this going to help or is that going to help? We really don't know. We're playing it almost as we go here. Uh,
1: Is is part of the problem, uh, Ray, just the general uncertainty about all this. And, and uh, it's not even a question of the arrangements. It's just that people like certainty and, and we don't have any.
3: 100% that's the problem. There has been a long tradition of relying on scientists to give binary answers. Yes and no. This is the truth. This isn't the truth. This is scientific. This isn't scientific. So it's a new situation for a lot of people to see scientists and physicians being uncertain and giving probabilities rather than outright answers. So I'm hoping this is a learning opportunity for most people to understand that this is the nature of science. There's always implicit uncertainty in the system, and we navigate as best we can, and we reassess our our recommendations as new evidence comes in. So I hate to call this a grand experiment, but there's a little bit of that going on. We're observing what happens in other countries and trying to learn from them, and we are learning in real time from our own population as well. So I ask people to be patient and confident and just be part of the solution. This is a a, a huge societal effort to get through this together. And I hope we could all all weather the storm together.
2: Uh, This is nothing new, right? This is called the scientific method. Understanding and embracing what it is that we don't know, correcting ourselves when we were wrong. We've talked about this in the past. I've been very wrong, and I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is in the face of new knowledge not acting. This is good science. So good science will say, "Here's what we don't know, and let's learn from what has what history has now taught us, and
1: let's change our actions moving forward so that we can do better." You know what my experience is. Some people can handle that. Uh, for a lot of people, things are changing too quickly, and for some people, it just makes them distrust science. And, and everything else. And even for people who aren't that extreme, I uh, what I find is that, you know, people get it into their heads, what makes them comfortable, and that's what they do, and it's kind of not based on very much of anything often. Uh, am I wrong?
4: Well, what, well what, what if I can think jump in. I think
1: uh, what you
4: said is really important. I think that uh, uh, I, I'm nervous when I hear people uh, pronouncing with great uh, assertiveness, that they really know the answer to something and that the case is closed. That gets me very really nervous. Or when somebody is not willing to uh, acknowledge new information as it comes along, these things are, are to be uh, immediately suspect. Uh, as uh, as, as the, uh, Dr. has just mentioned, uh, science is a moving uh, object all the time, continually appraising new information and coming out with new analyses.
1: Uh, yeah, except uh, a lot of lay people don't see it that way. Uh, What's Ray, interesting, Libby, is that in times of a
2: pandemic, you know, what we know from public health information is that there's no one approach that's going to appeal to everybody. There will be anti-vaxxers, there will be people with extreme views, there will be people who, who actually feel better when told absolutism. But what we know in times of a pandemic is that sharing what we do know and what we don't know and being as honest and transparent as we can about it as scientists is actually what works best in times of a pandemic.
1: Okay. Let's uh, take a call from Pat in Whitby. Hi, Pat. Hi. Hi, Libby. Hi. Um, first of all, I'd like to say common sense is now considered genius. <laughs> and okay. I think you have a point that there. We, we always go forward. We never go back. And I kind of thought for young children that it might encourage them to wear a mask if they were having their eyes made up in the morning or stick-ons or something. It could be a bunny today or a dog tomorrow or a rabbit tomorrow or a superhero. And also, do they still do home economic classes because they could sew up a storm of washable masks for the kids to use? It would give the students something to do or even parents that want to do it. Home economics. I haven't heard about that for several decades. <laughs> <laughs> That's like
2: how old I am? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I can guess, and I got this big smile on my face because I was one of those people who did home back back in the day sewing and all that. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually was,
0: and I think <laughs> I what you're
2: pointing doing. out is what's called the the IKEA effect. If I if I create something and I invest myself into it, I'm far more likely to use it. And that's a real thing. That, that's how our psychology works. In fact, we value it more once we've invested into making something. So I hope that schools do,
1: in fact, capitalize on that idea. I love it. Well, I, I don't think that there is an infrastructure for home economics, and I bet we have listeners who don't even know what it is. Uh, it was, you know, it, it, I didn't even have it in my day, but I knew what it was. Uh, okay. Um Uh, I now have another question, and doctors, do we have any inkling from other countries that are now in winter what the influenza season is going to be like?
3: I I can take that, this is Ray. Um, What we're seeing from the southern hemisphere is that they're having a better influenza season than they've had in a while, and we think that's due in large part to the fact that people are observing covid restrictions they're distancing they're wearing masks and they're washing their hands a lot more and frankly i hope this behavior continues for the next decade or two um and washing should be a regular feature of our lives
1: uh so that's why I'm, I'm Ray, really like there's something really I'm strange thinking. happening with your phone <laughs> so
2: right i cannot hear it very well yeah. myself okay. But i think what he was suggesting is that okay, by washing better. our hands we're going to mitigate the potential for influenza um, we always it's always a bit of a wait and see, but I would use this opportunity to to tell listeners, please be sure to get your pneumonia vaccinations now if you haven't done that already. There's uh, two separate pneumonia vaccinations, and that's important to get them on board, especially if you're over 65 and have high-risk conditions.
1: Uh, Ray, do you want to try again? Let's see if we can hear you now. Sure. Is that better? No, it is not. Is that, uh, that better? You're breaking up. I don't know. Um, uh, will will okay. maybe? Are you, are you near a window? Yes, I am. I'll, I'll walk away from the window. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, no, still not great. I'll try back to you in a minute or two, uh, Doctor Sly. Uh, do you have a? Uh, do you agree with that? I know that people, because of the measures, are less likely to get influenza. But is the actual strain better?
4: Uh, I, the pneumonia vaccine certainly endorsed that one, but this is not a time for uh, complacency regarding the influenza vaccine either. Remember that, what the last thing we want to do is to confuse the diagnoses between the uh, COVID and the influenza. Uh, we don't want false positives or false negatives on either side because it just confuses the issue. If somebody thinks you might have COVID and sends you go for more testing, uh, if it wasn't necessary. Uh, it it, it all, all indicators point to the fact that you should get your flu shot. I'm going to be first in line anyway, no question about it.
1: Uh, yeah.
2: Um, That's right. And again, we need to understand, no flu shot is perfect. You know, a good year might be 50% effective. There will still be, from the perspective of the GP, a lot of confusion around, is this flu, whether or not a person has had the flu vaccine. Is this flu? Is this COVID? Is this, you know, even a bad virus? Like, it may be hard to tell the difference between those. But that said, we have to protect against those diseases that we have adequate protection against and do that in the best way we can. And that's why pneumonia shots and flu shots are so important. The demand this year is going to be high. Already, estimates are, you know, a demand that's about 20 25% higher than in usual years. So I'm advising my own patients, get it at the first opportunity. Do not wait for, like, the high-dose flu vaccination because that, you know, I don't even know if it's coming or when it'll be available or how or if pharmacists will be able to give it. And what every single, you know, public health agency says is get it at the first opportunity. It takes two weeks for it to work, so it is important to get that soon.
1: Uh, Is that what you're hearing, Ray? We'll try again. (laughs) <laughs>
3: Can
1: you hear me now? Uh, you're kind of breaking up in a strange way.
0: Oh, okay, so um,
1: you know what, Ray? I think that uh, we, we only have a few minutes left anyway, so uh, why don't we uh, say so long to you, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, Dr. Sly, um, do you agree with that? That, uh... Yeah, absolutely.
4: We know there's a seasonality with influenza virus, and that's been well established, whether it's seasonal flu or whether it's pandemic flu. But we, we really don't have a lot of evidence for COVID. What we do know is that uh, it does seem to survive longer in slightly cooler air. That's one thing. And the other thing is that the, as we get uh, as we get into the winter season, with airs inside the house beginning to dry a lot more drier, we will see the uh, evaporation of those droplets. Uh, Uh, expected to be a little bit bit faster. So we may see virus floating around a little longer than it is in the hot, humid weather. So that's about as far as we know about the seasonality, but certainly uh, uh, all indications flu shot, yes. Uh,
1: And early not to wait for the, uh, the high dose?
4: Oh, get it as soon as you can. If you're older, I think you need you. you there, there was a like a four antigen preparation for you. I'm, I'm not quite sure what's happening this year, but uh, don't wait. I mean, don't wait until the flu has hit your family. I mean, that's a bit late. Get it now. Oh, as soon as you can.
1: Okay, always good advice. Uh, we're basically out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Timothy Sly and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Thank you
0: Thanks, so Libby. much, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.